welcome to the LMA podcast featuring thought-provoking conversations with legal marketing and business experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome everyone to our podcast today. My name is Danielle Smith and I am the president-elect of the Southeastern Region of the Legal Marketing Association. And it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Eddie Hartman, who is here with us today. Eddie has a unique background and experience that really blends technology and legal. He is one of the co-founders of LegalZoom and has been involved in many apps and technologies over the years, most recently including Ironclad, a SaaS business platform for contract management. He is also a licensed attorney and has spent some time lecturing at Stanford Law School. He is also a member of the Hague International Institute of Law Task Force on Justice. And in his current role, he is a partner at the global strategy firm of Simon, Kutcher & Partners, where he works and advises companies like Airbnb and Yelp, to name a few. Welcome, Eddie, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Danielle. So, Eddie, I know I kind of mentioned a few of your former roles, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Thanks so much for asking, Danielle. Uh, I, well, I, first, I want to say that I never intended to enter law. I, I thought I was going to be maybe a physicist or a scientist. I was raised by a physicist in the shadow of Bell Laboratories in the great state of New Jersey, which, as I'm sure your listeners know, is, according to science, the greatest state uh, country, perhaps the world. Wherever they have states, uh, New Jersey is number one. So the fact is, I never uh, thought about law as a profession, never thought that that was where uh, my life would take me. However, I met two amazing lawyers named Brian Lee and Brian Liu, and together and later with Robert Shapiro, we started LegalZoom. A lot of the people who come to LegalZoom did not choose to seek a traditional attorney or traditional firm uh, for a variety of reasons. It might be they were scared of the expense, it might be that they felt that the traditional justice system was something that would not respond to them, which is an increasingly frequent perspective. It may be that they simply didn't know a lawyer, didn't know how to find one. Uh, for whatever reason, when they come to LegalZoom, because LegalZoom does things for people uh, who are heads of household, oftentimes going through estate planning crises, someone going into surgery who doesn't know if they're going to come back out, someone going through a divorce, I got to hear more people uh, crying you know, genu in, in states of genuine emotional peril uh, on the other end of a phone line than I think most people in a lifetime. When you have that firsthand experience, you really come to understand that the law and access to the benefits of the law isn't something nice to have. It's at the core of how we operate as a society. It's at the core of how people need to conduct their lives. And unfortunately, Right? It's tough to get access to justice. It's tough to get help. You really can't do it yourself, even if it's your right, uh, to a high level of certainty. Even if it's your right to represent yourself. Even if it's your absolute, uh, within your rights to try to interpret the law yourself. Obviously, that's something very few people can do, and I'd say uh, potentially no one can do it without proper training. This is why help from qualified individuals who know the law and can help you to get at those benefits is something so critical, it's, and it's become a real passion of mine. So talking a little bit more about LegalZoom, Eddie, 
kind of tell tell us what was happening, you know, in the market that you guys saw this opportunity to create a legal service <laughs> provider like LegalZoom. <laughs> you know, I, Danielle, I'll be I'll be honest with you. I don't think we had any idea of how big LegalZoom. That was not what we were about when we started LegalZoom. Well, for one thing, what we saw was that most people did not know how to find quality legal help. They didn't know how much to pay for it, uh, didn't know how to access it. The internet, if you can believe it, was in its, uh, think of it as a second infancy. So we're speaking of the period of 1999 to 2000. Uh, people were rushing online. It was a huge flood. And yet, just as we were starting to come, the bottom fell out. There were huge expectations, very little realization. And as a result, all funding, it seemed, you know, you couldn't go into a bar, I was single at the time, and tell uh, an attractive uh, person that you were working for a dot-com. You'd get, you know, you'd get laughed out of the place. No one wanted to hear that you were involved in the Internet because the Internet was almost looked <laughs> at as a failed experiment. Nobody was funding it. Uh, there was no money coming into it, and everyone who had been involved with it was out of a job. But that turned out actually to be an ideal period for Brian, Brian, and myself. We were able to buy assets, I mean, you know, desks, chairs, phones, you name it, uh, at fire sale prices. We were able to hire people who previously we would not have been able to afford. In fact, I think a lot of the genesis of LegalZoom, the success, came from the fact that in that early moment, there was almost a cleansing fire, which is a forestry term, for when a uh, stand, when a forest has a fire go through it, which encourages new growth uh, and, and clears out some of the old growth. So LegalZoom was born out of the ashes of the first Internet age, and now here we are. Uh, it's grown way beyond, way beyond, Daniel, anything I could possibly have imagined. All right, so Eddie, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit. Let's let's talk about your role now at Simon Kutcher and Partners. Kind of tell us a little bit more about what, particularly what you're doing there. Thanks so much. Yeah, I encountered Simon Kutcher. For, I've never, ever, ever heard of Simon Kutcher. And the joke that I tell, and it's a, it's a funny joke because it's true, is that people will say, when I say, oh, I'm working at Simon Kutcher, they'll say, oh, Simon Kutcher, I know those guys. You do the little golden books, and I'll say, oh, that's, that's Simon Schuster. They're a publisher. We're, we're a consultancy. <laughs> we're two different things. But the, the, the fact that Simon Kutcher is not known widely is, sorry, is interesting in that its, its reach is so vast. The Economist magazine estimates that about half of all retail transactions in the United States have the price informed by work Simon Kutcher did. Uh, Simon Kutcher prices everything from stands to hotel rooms to gasoline. They helped create the Cayenne and the Panamera with Porsche. Core idea, the core of the philosophy, is that price is shorthand for value. We can all talk about what value means in the abstract, but when it comes to actually realizing value, how do you measure it? You know, we've got feet and inches for distance, and we've got pounds, kilograms for weight. How do you measure value? And, and the answer is no one gives a dime, a euro, a pound, 
uh, if they still have drachma, I don't know if they've got drachma, but okay, a drachma for anything other than value in exchange. So if you want to measure value, uh, stack up the money that people are willing to give you, and that is a measure of value, but it's different. It's different person by person. Uh, in the context of business law, it's different client by client. You know, two different, two clients will look at exactly the same matter uh, and say it's, it's worth something different. So understanding, first of all, that essentially price is shorthand for value, and understanding secondarily that value is subjective, that it differs from person to person, uh, is the core of what we do. So then we apply that philosophy, we apply that idea that we can determine value and the differentiated value in a population by looking at price and willingness to pay in order to create a very effective revenue strategy. Uh, and that's, that's what's propelled the growth of the company for more than 30 years. That's awesome. So I know that you work, besides law firms, you work with some other areas of professional services. What are some trends you've seen that are actually outside legal as it relates to pricing? So, you know, I think whether it's inside legal or outside legal, uh, everyone's coming to understand that platforms are important. Uh, uh, my, my colleague Jay Um over at Baker McKenzie said, uh, platform is the new black, uh, and I think that's exactly correct. Everyone is understanding that the world is moving from, well, first of all, the world is moving from ownership to usership, uh, which is, I think, very true. I, I no longer own many of the things that I used to own. Instead, I, I derive the benefits of the things that I used to own through some sort of a relationship. You know, these days, I, I don't necessarily own any computer servers business. I said subscribe to Amazon Web Services, which provides the same power that I used to, have to uh, physically buy. Uh, there are many people who don't own a car anymore. They access the benefits of a car through you know, services like Zipcar or Uber. Uh, so I think we're all getting used to the idea that ownership is being placed by, uh, replaced by usership. Uh, in terms of professional services, similarly, we we're seeing far more of a marketplace, uh, far more of a platform but also a shift from the traditional fee models that, that I think used to work since the 1950s, since retainers were put to one side, uh, and more and more people looking to a, a flat fee uh, or another type of fee structure uh, that makes more sense for both you know, the buyer and the provider. What are some things you think or you've seen that law firms actually learn from other, you know, B2B company pricing models? I think that law firms, well, the sentence presupposes that law firms do learn from other pricing models, which is a, a, my attempt at being humorous, but it really is a thing. I mean, law firms are, are quite resistant in a lot of, for a lot of very good reasons to change. Uh, I think that law firms, however, are being forced into a new posture through two or three new dynamics, which I can enumerate for you. The first is the fact that uh, large accountancies are now moving into the legal space. You know, the big four now all have legal arms of one form or another, whether that's, you know, typically that's actually starting a alternative um, legal structure uh, in the UK through which they can actually own a law firm. So that the the entry of these very, very large new players who are often very well organized, have great technology departments, uh, and typically have uh, 
a different fee structure than a law firm. I think that's the first thing. Second thing is when we look at the purchasers of law firm time, we're seeing a rise of legal procurement. We're seeing a rise of uh, officers, executive officers other than the general counsel becoming much more involved with uh, legal budgeting. Uh, and these are, you know, these are uh, positions that are very accustomed to other fee models. And they're less and less willing to listen to a general counsel says, well, you know, we've always done it by the hour and how the hours, uh, by the hours, how we're going to do it. So I'm, I'm seeing fields like intellectual property where flat fee pricing is becoming much more the norm. And there are a number of areas. We actually, uh, Simon Kutcher did a huge alternative fee arrangement study, um, which I, well, I'll be talking about more at the conference, see exactly what the trends are. And we're backing that up with Walter's Kluwer data so that we can see from a survey perspective what people want and where they believe that they're trending, and then Walter's Kluwer data, uh, where they're actually trending, actually happening, what people are actually paying for. I did say that there was a third area as well, uh, and the third area would be uh, technology itself. So one thing that we're seeing is artificial intelligence and machine learning being used to scrutinize bills. That makes things much more unpleasant. Uh, we've all seen so many things that used to be margin centers stripped out of bills. Uh, by procurement or by general counsel working closely with procurement. Well, now these bills are going to be scrutinized not by humans um, who have a limited amount of time and attention, but by machine learning algorithms that not only have unlimited time, uh, but get better and better and, and sharper and sharper. Uh, I think that these are forces that in combination make staying with the hourly rate less and less palatable. But I'll tell you, I think until clients really begin to want a change, it may, be, it may be tough for law firms to find a good reason to shift from a model that's done so well for them. I'm curious, Eddie, have you seen examples or something that companies or, or law firms are even doing that you think are truly innovative when it comes to pricing? Well, certainly law firms, uh, some law firms are trying. Uh, and I have seen a rise of success fees as I mentioned, in some practice areas, intellectual property, we've seen a lot of people moving toward uh, flat fees. I don't know if that's the law firm being innovative or merely being responsive to client demand, which is always sound practice. I will say uh, I do hear for every attempt to be innovative, I hear a, a set of reasons why they can't be. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the term shadow billing, but oftentimes a firm will go out there and say, okay, well, We'll do this for a flat fee uh, or, a, you know, some, something resembling a flat fee. And the client will say, fantastic, but please keep track of your hours. Well, how does that make any sense? Then what's going to happen is the law firm's going to say, here, you know, thanks, pay me the fee now. Uh, the client says, great, show me the hours. Uh, and if they got a sweetheart deal and many, many, many more hours were worked than they anticipated, then the client feels good. But if it's fewer hours, then the client sometimes pushes back and says, we didn't work nearly the number of hours that we thought, so I'm going to push back on your flat fee. I think that's, that's really disheartening. And we need to begin saying collectively, I will absolutely provide a flat fee, but I will not provide shadow billing. If we're going to be innovative, we also have to be smart and protect ourselves. Um, I think about this. If I manage to go into court and get a... Uh, uh, thrown out 
get it quashed, not on demur or something. I actually make less money than if I prosecuted it successfully if I pursued the case in court. Uh, how does that make any sense? The client ought to be happier that they didn't waste uh, months or even you know, years in court. Uh, they ought to be thrilled that they didn't tie up their executives uh, they, and, and everything else that comes with uh, litigation. But our incentives are completely in the, other, in, the, in the other direction. And I think until we really do get a bit innovative uh, and create structures that we can stand by, where we say, well, you know, if we thought the case was going to drag on for six months, but in fact I got it thrown out in a week and a half, uh, not, I don't get the fee that we agreed on for six months. I get a bonus. I get more money. Uh, and until we see those sorts of models embraced, I think law firms are going to have a hard time truly shifting over to AFA. Yeah, that's interesting. So from your perspective, Eddie, and that we've talked about alternative fee arrangements, what does the future of professional services pricing look like? What, what do you guys see at Simon Kutcher? What's, what's on the horizon? Again, given the multiple forces, I think that we see, you know, like storm clouds out there. Uh, Walters Kluwer is uh, just one of the leaders, uh, but you know, not the only company that's going to be releasing these uh, machine learning algorithms to scrutinize bills. We see procurement officers uh, and chief financial officers, non-GCs in other words, um, really motivating to save money uh, with law firm spend. We see um, uh, you know, so much more uh, you know, interest in adopting models that work for uh, procurement officers and chief financial officers and the other uh, uh, types of vendors that they deal with. And finally, we see the entry of other providers than traditional law firms who are very comfortable working with uh, other models. Uh, you know, we see all of those factors coming, and in addition, we see you know, potential recession uh, snapping all of this into high gear, and suddenly the, um, what was a leisurely walk toward alternative fee arrangements uh, becomes a mad dash uh, up a hill, because one of the issues that a lot of professional services organizations uh, face, and law firms in particular, is that when you're trying to manage to a flat fee or even a success fee, it's quite a different situation than trying to work to an hourly rate. When you work to an hourly rate, efficiency isn't necessarily that important. Project management is important, but it's more important in the sense of making sure client goals are met and that dates are hit. If there's overrun, you get additional money. In a flat fee or success fee environment, if there's overrun, that may eat away at your margins. You may wind up in you know, water. Investing in the right technology process and people to achieve that kind of efficiency uh, could be wrenching for some firms, but on the other hand, that is what every industry has undertaken, you know, going back to the Industrial Revolution, right? And yet law firms still participate in business in a way that's reminiscent to many uh, of the 1700s, of the 1800s, without a, a huge focus on efficiency. So we do think that, just to, to answer the question, we do think that a turn to efficiency is in the cards for nearly all professional services organizations. will be the most difficult law firms uh, and will almost certainly entail 
looking at some sort of a alternative fee arrangement, something that rewards efficiency instead of punishing. So, Eddie, I, I know that you kind of are familiar with LMA and our roles within law firms. What is some advice that you have us in legal marketing and business development roles in a law firm? What are some What is some advice you can give us on how we can sort of get involved and play a role in influencing, you know, our law firm's pricing structure or models? Such a wonderful question. Um, you know, law firms often make a lot of their their money and, and their best accounts are often repeat accounts. Everybody knows that. Um, why not take a, a card from other businesses? I, I described earlier in this podcast how we all are moving from ownership to usership, right? We're all, you know, more and more Americans are not owning cars. Uh, they are merely entering into a subscription or other relationship where they've got the benefits of a car. So we know that so many things in our life are becoming part of membership or part of a subscription. What about our relationship with our best clients? Why could not we shift to a membership model or a subscription model with your best clients where you say, I'm going to provide top-tier benefits to you. You are going to pay some sort of an annual uh, fee, and you will get again, the promise of ongoing benefit from my firm. Now, you may say, well, you know, a lot of our clients don't know. They don't know if their work's going to be that predictable. Then, then there are ways to deal with this. You can give people rollover credits. You can give people, um, you know, merely a, a promise on a discounted rate. Uh, but I think that if, you, if we tried, we would find that we could do more productive business development that would rely, uh, lead to better satisfied clients and a more predictable income stream if we just took that, I mean, and, that, and that's merely one concept of many. But we found that, in, again, as part of our alternative fee arrangement survey of many, many purchasers of law firm time, that they would like to enter into that kind of relationship. In fact, that if it guaranteed them benefits like you know, direct access to partners uh, that they were comfortable with when they needed it, uh, that they would be willing to pay some sort of a fee up front. And then they would consider that firm, you know, their firm of record uh, advertising, uh, which would lead again to more predictable revenues. So what we hear is purchasers of law firm time saying, I would like that. We hear law firms saying, you know, especially with the looming threat of recession, uh, we sure don't want to go through what we went through in 2008. Uh, and yet it's, it almost feels like the two sides aren't talking to each other. So one thing the LMA could do is begin to promote that sort of activity. And really, again, that's just one potential structure. Thank you very much. So this is sort of our last round of questions, Eddie, and this is sort of a quick fire, fun round for our members to kind of get to know you a little bit better. What is your favorite book or something you're currently reading? I cannot tell you how awesome the book series is put out by theedge.org. I recommend starting with the book, This Will Make You Smarter. They're collections of really short essays that have been written by luminaries in the sciences, in the arts, and the humanities, in psychology. There are so many interesting nuggets to be had, and uh, there are multiple books. They put out one each year. So how do you get your news? I know you travel quite a bit. Um, how, how do you absorb your information on a daily basis? Well, I live in California, which should tell you something about my politics. But I do try to get a blend 
Uh, I'll spend time on Fox. I'll spend time on CNN. I spend a lot of time on the New York Times. I spend a lot of time on the Financial Times. Uh, I think it's so important to get a diversity of viewpoints on every news story. It's shocking how different, uh, how differently things are. So I know you've spent some time lecturing at Stanford Law School. What is some advice that you have given or often give to those law students about what's it like on the other side? What's it like once they finish law school and try to, you know, start their legal career path? Well, first I say life is really rough for a solo, uh, unless you're a, <laughs> a, one of those rare niche boutique solos. It's, it's quite tough. Um, so be prepared. Understand that, you know, if you are headed towards solo or small practice life, you are a entrepreneur. You are very responsible for uh, bringing in business and understand how to run a business. If, on the other hand, you think that you're, you've got what it takes to go for a, uh, you know, AMLA 100, the people who run AMLA 100 firms, and, and frankly any law firm, are the apex predators of the intellectual world. Uh, it is, uh, you know, often an up-and-out culture. Obviously, there are exceptions, but be forearmed, be, be forewarned that it will be uh, a path that many try to walk, but very few reach the end. Uh, and finally. Remember that more and more, having a law degree does not necessarily mean that you need to be a practicing lawyer. There are so many alternatives these days, from Atrium to Axiom to, my goodness, you know, such a, a, a wide variety of non-traditional law firms if you want to practice, and places that you can take your legal uh, credentials if you don't. Uh, investment banks more and more are looking for people who can help to predict the outcome of lawsuits because there's a, a multi-billion dollar flood of investing there. So I would say think about how you can practice at the top of your license, understand the reality of what you might be facing, and uh, you know there's that old uh, Native American saying about using every part of the buffalo. Use every part of your degree. So I know you probably don't have much downtime, but when you do, what are, what are some things that you enjoy spending that time on? I thank you. I, you know, I love growing things. I mean, you're right. There, there's not not enough hours in the day. I I have a Fitbit and now. I I wish I didn't because it tells me I've been sleeping between four and five hours a night. I think it's broken, but it might be right because I really do love love to uh, help people start companies. So I I mentor at Founder Institute where I'm a global 40 mentor. I, I garden with uh, ferocity. I, I know ferocity is normally not a trait that you think about having in a gardener, but I, I do. <laughs> I love gardening. Uh, and I love raising kids because I, I have to. Uh, we've, we've got four in our home uh, in Menlo Park, Northern California. And uh, I, I have to say, four kids in Northern California is it's just a ton. But we're, we're very happy. Uh, I'm busy, but I'm happy. In your garden, Eddie, what are you most proud of? Your particular produce or vegetable? <laughs> <laughs> All so each, each of the kids gets to pick out uh, right around Christmas time. Gets to pick out a variety of tomato that they particularly love, uh, and then we buy the seeds from uh, organic farmers and we germinate them in the January February time frame. Plant them in the ground uh, always before March first which also happens to be my twin's birthday, uh, and then we're off to the races. So I'm, I'm most proud of these heirloom tomato varieties. Awesome. And my last question for you is, what is your favorite place you've ever traveled? Well, I was, 
I was the first thought that came to my head was Venice, Italy. We were there this summer. Uh, fun tip: you cannot drive to Venice, Italy. I learned that <laughs> the hard way. Um, not drive a car into to your hotel in Venice, Italy. But I'll tell you the honest answer. Uh, my favorite place to travel to is back home. I'm on the road so much. I travel so much, and there's nothing quite as wonderful as when you see uh, your home airport uh, hovering into view, and you know it's it's not going to be more than an hour before you get home. And see. Well, I think that wraps us up today. Uh, for those of you who want to hear more from Eddie, he will be the keynote speaker at the LMA Southeastern Regions Annual Conference coming up September 25th through the 27th in Birmingham, Alabama. The theme is actually being a change agent, and Eddie has got some great um, primary research and data that has never been shared before, so he is going to come and share it with us at our annual conference on law firm pricing. This is um, some brand-new data that they have been working on at Simon Kutcher, so we are very excited to hear this and, and see what he's got in store at the conference. There is also still time to register, and you can visit lmaseconference.com for more information. Eddie? It has been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for your time and your insight and very excited about getting this discussion out to our members. Thank you, Danielle. It's been a real pleasure. That concludes another installment of the LMA podcast. To discover all that LMA has to offer, visit legalmarketing.org. For links to content featured in this episode, please check out the show notes. If you like the podcast and want to help others find us, we hope you'll take the time to subscribe to it and rate us on iTunes. Thank you and have a great day.